We are here today to talk to you about a very major recording project that you have uh, recently completed called Beethoven Unbound. And I yeah. thought I would just actually just start off really with, with the title and ask you mm-hmm. what, what does the word unbound represent to you and does it have more than one application here? Yes, I think it does. Well, it wasn't my original idea. My manager came up. We were looking for a, a snazzy title for the series rather than just Beethoven, the complete works or something. But unbound in the sense that I'm trying to unbind them from the usual way of presenting the sonatas. Usually you have a box set and CD1 is sonatas 1, 2, 3, and then CD2 is 4, five, six, and so on. But I've tried to devise all CDs so they they play like a mini recital in themselves by mixing and matching sonatas and pieces from different periods of Beethoven's life. So it's unbound from the usual way in that sense. People tell me I have a, a particularly unique way of playing Beethoven. I don't know about this, but that's what some people tell me, so it's unbound from the, the conventional sense, maybe. There's also a connection to the famous poem by Shelley, Prometheus Unbound. There's a link between Beethoven and Prometheus. He wrote a, uh, a ballet, of course, called the, the Creatures of Prometheus. So various applications of the, of the word unbound in that sense. Yes, definitely. And uh, unbound for you, too, uh, Mr. Williams, certainly, because this freed you up from the constraints of having to follow a published set of sonatas or a chronological order. What, uh, what is a, a standout for you of a particular, oh, I don't know, epiphany or maybe not such a big word, but uh, uh, a particular joy that you got in realizing how this Beethoven work from this set fits so well with another. Do you have an example of of that, of a discovery like that? What do you mean exactly? Well, I just mean that as you were looking at different ways to put these different sonatas together, or maybe the sonata and the Fantasia Opus 77, something like that, did you realize, wow, that those two, that piece following that piece, go so well together? Yes, well, all the pieces on CD3, for, exa- for example, they're, both, they're all fantasies in a certain sense. We begin with this rather crazy fantasy, Opus 77, and then we move on to the pieces which Beethoven himself called Sonatas Quasi Una Fantasia, which is Opus 27, numbers 1 and 2, where the movements don't follow the usual conventional plan. He starts with a slow movement, and so on, and then Opus 101, Sonata number 28, that also plays without a break, and there's an unusual ordering of the movements in that piece as well, so that's a bit like a fantasy. Um, so altogether, CD3 makes up a fantasy album. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that these are like recitals, and is it correct that you well, first had some Wigmore Hall recitals, and could, yes. would that have been the origin of this recording project? 
Absolutely, yes. They wanted nine recitals over three years, and the 32 sonatas themselves, they make up something like seven and a half recital programmes. So we obviously wanted some more material. So some little ditties like the Diabelli variations and the Eroica variations just had to be included because they're such significant works of Beethoven. Mm-hmm. And I should say that uh, a very good friend of mine, the celebrated American record producer, Judith Sherman, she's been a fan of mine for many years and she wanted to record this project on CD. So she's been wonderful with me coming over from New York to record each concert and then putting them all together afterwards. I'm very, very grateful to her for all she's done. With the disc where you have the Diabelli variations, I understand that you took two very small sonatas and placed them at the beginning and the end, almost like like a prelude and a postlude. Yes. Well, that was the last thing I decided on, basically, and uh, I really didn't know where to put these Opus 49 sonatas, which are only about uh, eight or nine minutes each. So uh, I just say, oh, we'll put them with the Diabelli variations and see if they work there. But uh, uh, many people have written reviews saying that they like this particular thing, so uh, obviously it worked. But uh, as I say, it was the last thing that I decided after Um, devising all the other CD orders. Lear, this is a project that, as you said, goes back over several years, involved the live performances Mm. at Wigmore Hall. Was the Mm. entire project recorded in Wigmore Hall or other venues? Yes, they were all recorded live in Wigmore Hall, apart from the Opus 33 Bagatelles, which were recorded also in, in Wigmore Hall, but not in front of an audience. Um, it happened to be empty on a particular afternoon in the summer of 2017, and one of the CDs was a bit short, so we decided to fill it up with some bagatelles. But everything else has been recorded live, and I much prefer recording live than recording in a studio because you get a much more adrenaline rush when you're playing in front of an audience. I imagine so. I spent some time listening to a two-CD promotional set and was listening for yes. listening for the audience response. You know, uh, you sometimes hear little tiny sounds um, during the pieces and then the applause afterwards sounded very yes. warm, warm and appreciative after yes. those performances. But hopefully not too many sounds in between. But uh, if we had major problems with coughing or the piano bench was creaking. That was one of the big problems, in fact. But we did have some post-concert patching sessions, which sometimes went on until about half past 11 in the evening or sometimes. So hopefully you can't hear many coughs in there now. No, no, nothing quite like that. More like the that that excitement that crackle of uh, of the ambience of the hall is what i'm what i'm referring yes that's right and yes the the laughter occasionally because so much of these beethoven sonatas are humorous and the the ending of some of them is, is very thrown away it's meant to bring a bit of a laugh i think from the audience you make me think of the bagatelles opus 126 where the last one 
has has a very fast beginning that almost sounds like the end, and then the most of that last yeah. it feels very quiet, and then it suddenly comes back, and then it just ends up. Yes. That must have produced some chuckles. Yes, yeah. The Opus 14, number two sonata, um, that has a, a variation set middle movement, which is all quite soft, and then the, he, he seems to be wanting to fade away, and then the last concert, the last chord is fortissimo, and that actually brought a round of applause in the hall, which we couldn't have a round of applause in the middle of the sonata on the CD, so we had to redo that patch. But uh, that's certainly one of his most humorous movements, and that's a big surprise. I think this Opus 14, number two sonata should have a nickname, the Surprise Sonata. It's a lot more effective than the, the Haydn Surprise Symphony, but uh, nicknames are quite useful in that respect. Sometimes descriptive and sometimes distracting, aren't they? Yes, the moonlight is certainly distracting because Opus 27, number two, doesn't really have anything to do with moonlight. Um, the first movement has got all this influence of Bach and so on, and it wasn't until the 19th century Ludwig Relstjab decided it was going to be representative of romanticism and gave it the title Moonlight, but really doesn't say anything at all about the piece itself. That brings me to a thought that I was having recently about Beethoven and that he's certainly a revolutionary figure, one of my favorite composers of all time. And I think that sometimes he gets attached to the romantics simply because he's on that side of 1800. But isn't he really more... I mean, he's revolutionary and transitional, but he, some of his pieces feel more like the culmination or apotheosis of classicism and less like the heralding in of romanticism. Yes, I think so, too, if you compare them to the sonatas by Schumann and Chopin and so on. They're totally different from the Beethoven late works, but uh, I think part of the reason why he developed in a certain way was the fact that he couldn't hear anything, so he couldn't really hear the the more up-to-date music that was being written at this time. So uh, the later pieces are certainly very odd and far-reaching, but uh, they seem to be inhabiting his own world rather than the more contemporary going on into the romantic period world, if you see what I mean. Oh, certainly. He, he became much more inward toward the end of his life due to his deafness and isolation. Yes. Yes. And music was completely different at the end of his life compared to where he started. That's right. Well, it's its influence of Haydn and Mozart and things in the early sonatas and the early string quartets, but uh, he went his own way. Maybe if he hadn't developed his deafness, he wouldn't have been such a great composer, such an individual composer, I don't mind. It seems an awful thing to say, but... Maybe it's a blessing for us that he became deaf, I don't know. It's just a thought I sometimes have. Certainly allowed him to put all of his focus into his musical ideas. Yes, yes. Where are you heading off next with musical projects now that uh, Beethoven is sewn up? I'm in the middle of Schubert at the moment. Uh, I'm doing a five-concert series. Judy Sherman is coming over again. We've recorded three programmes, two more to go. So there'll be a seven-CD CD set coming out in 2020. 
with most of the sonatas, wonder of fantasy, impromptus, etc. And who knows if I move on to some of the later romantic composers after that, but uh, there's a fairly big anniversary of Beethoven coming up in 2020 also, so I guess I'll be coming back to Beethoven fairly often. I imagine you do will. In the meantime, we have much to explore in your wonderful recording, Beethoven Unbound, and look yeah. forward to sharing that with our listeners here in Portland, Oregon. Lear Williams, um, yeah. may- maybe we'll get to see you on the stage here in Portland in the future if... Uh, I hope so, before too long, yes. <laughs>